exciting news. Tickets for the Conference on Religious Trauma, Court 2023, are now available. Also, if you're interested in an ad-free version of the Divorce and Religion podcast, come join me over on Patreon. Links for both are in the show notes. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Divorcing Religion podcast. I'm your host, Janice Selby. I'm a registered professional counselor and a religious recovery consultant. My guest today is Dr. Coco Owen. Dr. Owen is a licensed psychologist who has a private practice working with people recovering from religious trauma and in various stages of deconstruction. She grew up Seventh-day Adventist in Southern California and went to Adventist schools from kindergarten through college, including a two-year stint at a church boarding school. After a deep crisis of faith during her last year of college, Coco became an atheist and left the church completely. That began a long and sometimes painful psychological, spiritual, and creative process of recovery and self-discovery that culminated in her becoming a clinical psychologist and published poet. I met Coco through our mutual friend and colleague, religious trauma pioneer, Dr. Marlene Winnell. Welcome, Coco. Hi, Janice. It's nice to see you again. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad that you could join us today because I'm sure that uh, we do have um, folks who have left Adventism who are uh, watching or listening to the podcast, but you're my first guest um, to actually talk about it and give us kind of an inside scoop. Um, what it was like to grow up uh, in an Adventist home, some of the things that you were taught that you believed uh, to some degree or another before you eventually came to your own uh, very different conclusions. So mm-hmm. thanks for mm-hmm. joining us. Sure. Oh, you're welcome. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about um, what it was like to grow up uh, in an Adventist home? Were your folks yeah. already Adventists when you were born? Mm-hmm. Right. My folks were already Adventists, so I was, um, you know, Adventist from birth, you know, as we often said. And uh, I guess just as a caveat, I have to say just up front, I'm somebody who deconstructed so very long ago before there was any such term at all. So I've now been out of the church twice as long as I was in it. Um, wow. So that that's a certain kind of a mark of, uh, I, I guess, accomplishment, you know, at least for me, knowing mm-hmm. where I came from. Uh, mm-hmm. But so if I'm a little bit fuzzy on uh, some of the, you know, cultural details and things like that is because it has been a very long time ago. And also because I was, you know, really my childhood was in the 60s, essentially, and, you know, coming of age as a teenager um, through the 70s, a lot of the social kind of practices and beliefs the customs of the church at that time have changed a lot and have evolved since then. So a lot of those particular sort of things of Adventism that really made it unique when I was growing up um, made us what we often, what we always called a peculiar people. That's how we self-identified. I think in subsequent, you know, decades, Adventists maybe aren't quite as peculiar compared to the mainstream cultures they used to be. But so I can't speak too much for, you know, to how it's evolved over these decades, but I can give kind of a snapshot of what it was like, um, you know, to grow up as an Adventist in the 60s and 70s. Sure. Yeah, I'm really curious now what uh, what made uh, Adventists a peculiar people. That sounds like definitely a religious kind of self-righteous way to mm-hmm. identify uh, oneself. 
Yeah, and and the badge of honor and a badge of faith, really. You know, of course, mm-hmm. in a way. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So the most, I think, peculiar doctrines that really, you know, it always set Seventh Day Adventists apart from other, you know, mainstream evangelical and Christian denominations was, is, of course, right in the title, right in the name, the Seventh Day Adventists, in that they had decided. You know, that they had the conviction through reading scripture that Saturday, uh, the Jewish Sabbath, was the true day of worship and not Sunday. And that the day of worship was never changed, you know, with the resurrection, you know, or after um, Jesus rose from the dead. So they didn't buy all of that at all, and they wanted to continue observing the Sabbath. So they, this is seventh day, Saturday Sabbath. So they did go back and rely a lot on the Ten Commandments, of course. For that and you know more texts in the old testament as christians call it the old testament so that is probably the first defining mark that made them peculiar and then in addition to that they also were very caught up and swept up in all the health reform uh movements temperance movements and so on that were all also very big um in the latter part of the 1800s you know that culminated in prohibition obviously you know for the general culture but there was just a lot of emphasis on on health reform at that time and probably everybody knows the name kellogg like kellogg cereal well the, the founder of the kellogg company was originally a seventh-day adventist and he had developed the process of you know creating breakfast cereal to use at the adventist used to be called sanitarium hospital a sanitarium back in battle creek michigan where the kellogg company was founded so that was a long part of the adventist tradition was this attention to health and temperance so part of our peculiarity was uh, similar actually to the latter-day saints the mormons they had followed these practices of abstaining from alcohol of course abstaining from tobacco so no smoking um and meat they follow generally some of the kosher laws but not really <laughs> but avoiding what were identified as unclean meats and um even things like avoiding too much oh spices like no mustard no pepper all of those things were seen as too stimulating you know to the system wow what and about coffee stimulate the animal passions so you see mm-hmm. how that feeds right into purity culture and um, yes no coffee no caffeine so um and most were vegetarian so these were a lot of the factors that uh, not not just avoiding unclean meats but just vegetarian altogether so these were some of the things that together really you know made Gavin's peculiar let's say wow and and so in the home you grew up in did you folks abide by all those um rules Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we were vegetarian. Uh, the only time we ever had any meat was, uh, you know, on holidays. We'd go to, you know, one my aunt or uncle's house, and my aunt was actually an Adventist, but with uh, Eastern European roots. So f- apparently they ate, still tended to eat more meat there. Of course, not the unclean meat, so never any pork. The idea of pork or bacon was just like anathema. It's just like wow. the scariest thing ever to say to an Adventist, like, here, eat a piece of bacon. It just, you just automatically, like, freak out. Uh, so she would make a turkey, though, for Thanksgiving, you know, or Christmas. So that'd be one, you know, once or twice a year that we would eat some meat. But otherwise... As, as a Canadian, I got to say, I don't think I could do it without my ham and pineapple pizza. <laughs> Yeah, there was definitely no ham and pine. uh, Definitely no ham. Uh, Definitely no uh, ham and pineapple pizza. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so I was raised vegetarian, and yeah, never 
folks never drank coffee. Even black tea was seen, you know, still caffeinated, so to be avoided. No Coca-Cola. Um, a big scandal, you know, back in the 60s when we realized that Mountain Dew had caffeine in it. So any of us, you know, kids who had been drinking uh, Mountain Dew, we realized that we were, you know, I don't know if I guess if we called it a sin, but definitely doing the wrong thing. It's not okay. So always, we were always on the lookout for hidden caffeine and things. And another terrible, terrible thing to have discovered you eaten accidentally was lard. So a lot wow. of discussion about was it okay to go to, you know, any of the fast food outlets like in the Southern California, Mexican food is popular. So there was Del Taco, the various, you know, Mexican uh, fast food places. If rumors spread that they used lard in their beans, then that, that would, news would spread like wildfire fire through the church. Wow. Churches in the schools and everybody would, uh, again, get very alarmed and have to stay away from that. And yeah. so th- those weren't just um, for, you know, dietary reasons, like those things aren't good for you. They were actually considered to be sinful to have ingested those things. Is that right? I mean, yeah, basically it was a very, very fine line to know things that were considered unhealthful or they were spoken about as unclean in the Bible. Unclean was basically sinful. I guess, mm. you know, and again, I'm sort of remembering my understanding as a child, you know, or a teenager, what it was, but it might as well have been sinful. So, yeah, I think so. Wow. And you, you grew up in a, a home that followed these regulations and then you also mm-hmm. attended an Adventist school. So was mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. I don't know how many, how popular uh, Adventism is like were there enough kids to do a school from kindergarten to grade 12 were there 200 kids or 100 kids or yeah you know it depended on the area for sure and uh where i grew up is actually there are quite a lot of adventists because i grew up right uh, near loma linda california which is kind of a mecca you know for adventists because uh there's a uh, the found one of the founders of the church ellen white ellen g white who's considered mm-hmm our prophet, um, had established a hospital, a sanitarium, as they called it then, a hospital there in Loma Linda, which has since grown enormously. You know, it has a huge medical center and hospital and all of that medical school. So there were a lot of Adventists living in that area. But um, so, I, I mean, I couldn't say throughout the country, probably some of the private Adventist schools were pretty small, but um, they might have been able to support, you know, a, you know, K through six or K through eight. Mm-hmm. But that's why Advents developed boarding schools. You mentioned, you know, how I said I had gone to a boarding school because mm-hmm. there weren't necessarily enough Adventist kids to have schools. You know, in all the remote, more rural areas, they would establish boarding schools for high school. So Adventist kids, once they aged out of their, maybe their local church school, could still go to high school in an Adventist context. So that was a very popular thing to do up through. Again, I'm not sure I know it's, I know where I graduated from, the boarding school has a very um, small student body now compared to when I was there. So no surprise. And that was in the U.S.? Yeah, that was in uh, central Northern California. I went to school for the, any XSDAs listening, a Monterey Bay Academy. So, but not as popular, I think, in, you know, more recent decades uh, for kids to be sent away to high school and not have a car and 
not have a lot of as much access to culture and media and all of that. Right. Yeah. And so uh, you, I imagine, wouldn't have had a prom or a dance or anything uh, oh. at the school like that. <laughs> well, Abbots are kind of good at inventing what I always call vegetarian versions of mm-hmm. secular practices and institutions. So we would have, um, well, they had some sort of a, as I call it, vegetarian name for it, a banquet. They would have periodic banquets, so we would still have some experience, you know, as high school students of, you know, having a guy. It was, of course, always heterosexual. Um, having a guy ask a girl out, <clears throat> have a corsage, and they'd have a special dinner and so on. But there was also a lot of surveillance, you know, of the students and it was typical boarding school stuff. Again, we're talking, you know, the mid seventies for me. Uh, faculty members would be stationed outside where the banquet was held and the dates, you couples, you'd have to say goodbye there in a chaste way and go to your respective, of course, sex segregated <laughs> dorms. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> wow. Like chaperoning and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and when you look back uh, on your time, uh, your schooling time, was it, do you have positive feelings about it do you feel like it was a good it was reasonable you got a reasonable education that people were kind or what was it like yeah you know folks uh teachers are all generally kind and you know well-meaning and and so on you know as i guess you know everyone's experience is different but my experience was so that just so many people in the church were very genuine and well-meaning and doing their best, you know, and so on, according, you know, to their beliefs. And some of the positives, you know, of course, every group um, does have its positives as well, where, you know, a lot of community-mindedness and, um, you know, really dedication to being, to having integrity and, and, and so on, with obvious exceptions, of course, that, you know, many, many folks have painfully realized that they're always... Mm you know, bad apples among the pastors or teachers and mm-hmm. and abuse and things like that were covered up. But just fortunately, in my experience, I didn't run across any of that. But, you know, at the time when you're a child, you don't necessarily realize how sheltered you are and that we had such an us versus them mentality. You know, those of us in the church, we were, we had the truth. We were the one true church. It was our duty to go witness to everybody, to convert everybody that we could. There was a lot of emphasis on evangelizing and witnessing. And in Southern California, that would look more like, oh, going out yearly at Christmas time to carol and collect monies, um, you know, to send to missions and so on. Um, So, but a lot of that felt good because that's what we were taught. Like we were the special people, peculiar people, and we had this mission. So we had a lot of sense of purpose. And, you know, with that can obviously comes the things that folks can sometimes miss. And it is hard when you leave, you know, that sense of certainty and community and belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, with some discomfort anytime you're out in the world <laughs> or had, you know, worldly friends and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, by the time I think I got to, you know, maybe be a junior or senior in high school, that's when I started to have some questions. And that that nice insular world just stopped kind of being enough for me, especially intellectually, that I just started to have some questions and couldn't quite make like, every, everything fit together anymore. And then mm-hmm. that 
those doubts and so on had kind of passed through those at that time. And then they went underground a bit when I went into college and so on again at the Adventist College, um, only to resurface again uh, with a vengeance much later. But when I look at the quality of the education that I had, though, in, in college, I'd have to say was pretty limited, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of sense because you couldn't very openly teach a lot of science. Uh, there was a lot of tension, you know, in the church and even to this day around the teaching of evolution and how open you can be about that or things that challenge uh, creationism and Advents are still very... <laughs> at least as far as I know. Again, I'm mostly I'm speaking from my experience of long ago, but we're very much literalists um, you know, about the 6,000-year-old earth and the a young creation and so on, and the literal six days of creation, and especially why, because the idea of the account in Genesis where, you know, God rests on the seventh day and makes that, you know, the sacred day is the linchpin of the existence of the Adventist church. So, you really need that creation story to be true. Right. From which the Sabbath derives. Well, I'm wondering about um, Ellen White and how she factored in. So she wasn't a founder, but she was considered a prophet of the church. Well, she was. She was one of the main founders. Oh, she was. Yeah. And she was considered a a prophet, you know, as time went on, and, and again, a very complicated history that I'm not, a lot of it, again, mercifully, I've gotten, and I never studied, you know, in the sense theologically, but definitely, um, I mean, she and the, the church itself grew out of what was called the Second Great Awakening, this mm-hmm. whole time of great religious ferment, especially, you know, on the eastern seaboard in the U.S., right around the 1830s and 40s, and the main figure was um, Joseph Miller, yeah. William Miller, sorry. Okay. Uh, who was one of the first, William Miller, who was one of the first to make a really specific prediction in that era that the second coming of Christ was going to happen. Originally, he said, you know, 1843. Um, then he recalculated and, of course, was relying on a kind of very literal prophetic reading of like the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Um, but then set a very firm date of October 22, 1844. And wow. so that Oops. preaching, <laughs> yes, <laughs> something went wrong there. So, so that that preaching that he did, you know, was really the message then taken by a lot of circuit writers. They used to call them the circuit writing preachers mm-hmm. who went out to especially rural areas and held tent revival meetings and and were spreading, you know, this belief about the imminent, you know, return and of, of Jesus, so that everybody should repent and get ready. You know, as famously, you know, I think it even figured in that um, famous TV series, The Leftovers. Oh. There was like kind of an Adventist, malarian Adventist subtext in the portrayal of the apocalypse in that in that series. Okay. And so were those followers the Millerites? Mm-hmm. They were the Millerites, and they kind of drew from some of the various denominations, I think, you know, Baptist, Methodists, and so on, because it just was this apocalyptic fervor, really, that that developed. And then, you know, once October 22 came and went, they called it the Great Disappointment, because obviously a lot of folks, like, sold their farms, you know, the whole thing. Wow. We're famously up on their rooftops wearing ascension garments and uh, waiting for Jesus to come. And, wow. you know, the day came and went. 
So that was called the great disappointment. And out of that, you know, obviously a lot of people just let it go and went back to their respective churches or what have you. And, you know, some didn't. And the folks that um, ended up kind of becoming the nucleus of the Adventist church were among those who kept racking their brains trying to figure out where did they go wrong and because they thought the calculations of William Miller were correct in some sense. So they came up with an explanation to explain why Jesus hadn't literally come that day, but that 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 day was important. And they gave it essentially a symbolic interpretation or kind of a heavenly reading that Jesus did do something different up in heaven. And again, mm-hmm. I'm getting into the deep weeds about that. But then for any ex-Adventist, it's called obviously the doctrine of the sanctuary. That Jesus had gone from one part of the heavenly sanctuary to another to begin the final judgment. Right. Uh, another thing that makes Adventists peculiar in the eyes of other mainstream uh, uh, Protestant, you know, fundamentalist uh, churches. So, well, so uh, did the yes, yeah, of the group, did, and they so the Millerites kind of morphed into um, the Adventists. Yeah, or at least some of these folks who had been Millerites but didn't totally give up you know, the belief or the conviction that something had happened then. And then they got exposed to the idea um, of the seventh-day Sabbath, which I literally just read. I was literally looking at Wikipedia before we got on trying to remind myself <laughs> of some of this stuff and found out it was yet another woman. It was a seventh-day Baptist, actually, who brought that notion that, no, the Saturday, you know, the seventh day of the week is still the true Sabbath. She had brought that to what then became the Adventists, you know, coming out of that Millerite movement. So, another unsung uh, uh, important woman figure in the history that I'd never heard of until today. So, there you go. <laughs> wow. I, it's it's hard to believe you know, when people have come out and made these very bold predictions, it's going to be such and such day, such and such year. And, mm-hmm. and people have bought into the, to bought into it to the point that they've sold their yeah. belongings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're up on their rooftops or mountaintops, even in special clothing, waiting, mm-hmm. waiting, waiting, calling it the great disappointment sure makes sense because it would be incredibly disappointing. But then mm-hmm. what seems so hard to believe is that folks didn't just you know rip everything off and say well that's it i'm done with that that i've been had you know that sort of thing but the the need to believe uh especially when our identity is involved with it is just so powerful Mm -hmm. yeah it's very hard to say after making all that investment those sacrifices that that was wrong i think it really sets up a cognitive dissonance you know kind of phenomenon for sure to say I either have to admit I was totally wrong and this didn't mean anything and I did all this for nothing, which is honestly very devastating, Mm -hmm. or to find another way to explain it, which is then what that kind of core group did that became, you know, the founders of the Adventist church. So they could save to salvage something out of that. Because no, who can argue with, well, something happened in heaven. Oh, really? Because yeah. <laughs> nobody's there to see right. uh, see whether it happened or not. So yeah. then in, in high school, you started to have some doubts in senior uh-huh. high. Uh, and then you went to an Adventist um, college as well. Right. And yeah. then you really started uh, struggling with yeah. uh, believing the things that you'd been taught. Yeah. Um, you know, and partly that was uh, precipitated by 
meeting up with, that's actually the person who's now became my husband later, another former Adventist uh, through mutual, again, Adventist friends. But um, he had been uh, able or allowed somehow, he got to go to a secular, a worldly college uh, rather than the rest of, you know, all my friends and classmates from the Adventist school had all gone to Adventist college as mostly we did. The only reason most any practicing Adventist wouldn't have gone to an Adventist college would be finances. They just literally couldn't, you know, afford it. Um, you know, or maybe they had to stay home and take care of a parent or something or had to go to work right away. Other than that, we pretty much all went to the Adventist college, but he had somehow managed to be able to go to a, to a secular college. So when I met him, you know, through other um, Adventist friends and so on, he was sharing things that he was reading. Uh, he was studying philosophy. He was reading, he was naming these names, people I'd never heard of, Kant and Nietzsche. And it's like, what? Um, just, you know, and just being exposed to some of that. And mind you, I was an English major, so it's not like I didn't know a little bit you know, about literature or intellectual history, but it was, again, so limited in the way it could be taught. Uh, in the Adventist context, um, I know I literally had, I had a class in world history, maybe as a sophomore in college, and there was one lecture on Greek philosophy, on Socrates and Aristotle, one lecture. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and that was it. And I remember I was just, I was dumbfounded and mesmerized. I couldn't believe that there was any other system of thinking or any other way to look at those quite deep questions, the you know, big questions that, of course, our faith had every answer for. So there was another way to talk about what's reality, what's truth, what is knowledge, how do we know things, how how do we make meaning, you know, where does meaning derive from? I, I remember that lecture so distinct. I was riveted. I was taking notes madly, and it hadn't been the most interesting class. I was taking notes like crazy, and I must have had my mouth hanging open. And I even stayed after class to ask him, was like, what what's this what philosophy i mean literally it's like i mean obviously i'd heard the word somewhere but you know when we're raised in that religious bubble it's like you have such a filter filtering mechanism in place about you just know that's the world i just can't really listen to it you know so i grew up listening to the nightly news or reading the newspaper most days once i was a little older but it's like I just couldn't take it in and really allow myself to think much about what was talked about because just by definition, that's worldly stuff happening out there. Those are the non-believers and we're over here. So, yeah, I just hardly explained the difference it made to hear that word philosophy and somehow it got in. I was able to actually hear it. And so, wait, what? There's a whole other way of thinking, whole other way of answering, you know, the questions about where does meaning come from? It doesn't just come from being saved, you know, and being ready mm -hmm. for the second coming. Yeah. So, anyway, I immediately ran to the library and tried to read things about philosophy and what is it and what's all this about, you know. So, I think that had also prompted just kind of a, a realization that there was a lot of stuff that I hadn't ever thought of and just didn't mm -hmm. even realize it that it existed in other ways of thinking um and that was just magnified then when i met these other friends you know the person who became my husband um later uh and literally almost like from one day to the next it's as if this whole that whole edifice of belief that filter that i'm talking about you can almost picture it like being inside a snow globe 
you know, just such a sense of separation from the world. Of course, this peculiar people identity, always being set apart, you know, from the world and waiting for the next world to come, waiting for the second coming, as if that snow globe just kind of dropped and shattered. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. what was that like for you? Were you living at home and attending uh, college? Like, were your parents seeing what was happening? Or was there anyone you were talking to or just this young man? Uh, I was living in the dorm at the at the college. Uh, so live, still living on campus. So um, I think my, you know, my roommate and friends and, and you know, including <clears throat> including my now husband, were people that I would talk to some about it, but yeah, I really had, I don't know, you know, lay term is a nervous breakdown. I guess, of course, now as a psychologist, we don't use that term anymore, but yeah, I was just, just very impacted by it. And I really couldn't pick myself up to mm. just go on about my business. I stopped going to class. I stayed in my room. I started writing, started writing a lot of things, drawing some pictures, just things very out of character for me and just kind of reeling, reeling really and taking that in about what does that mean? You know, because if there's other ways of finding meaning in the world and other paths, it's like I suddenly woke up and realized there's other religions and they also have creation stories. I mean, all the whole thing, this all literally fell into place or out of place in my mind, like a like a stack of dominoes falling, you know, over the course of literally a week or two. Um, wow. When I just went from saying, wait a minute, there's other ways of finding meaning. There's other truths. There's other ways of describing reality and many different traditions, not only whatever Greek philosophy, but others, you know, Buddhists have a whole story about the nature of reality and the purpose of the human being in this life and so on. Uh, it was just one domino falling after the other. And, you know, by the end of that, even that first day, that first week, the first two weeks, I didn't believe in the Christian God anymore. I didn't believe wow. in the Adventist view of reality. I didn't believe in the eschatology of the Adventist church, which was really, again, along with the idea of the doctrine of the Seventh-day Sabbath. I didn't believe in that eschatology anymore, that this is the way it's all going to go. The whole purpose of this world here is just for this play of good and evil and, you know, for God basically to prove to Satan and the fallen angels that God really is just. That's really what this world is for, just this cosmic play. Couldn't believe it anymore. It all just fell just like that. Wow. Yeah. So what what happened? That's so I, So incredible. I stayed in my room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That I could feel the kind of the the heartbreak and the angst over that and of course it brings up my own recollections mm -hmm. of what it was like for me too when I started having those when I tugged on that thread on that yes. loose thread and everything yeah. just started mm -hmm. unraveling even as I was trying to grab the yarn and keep it from mm -hmm. unraveling because totally. I knew it would have such a high cost mm -hmm. uh, in, with you know losing relationships and and so forth so did you leave college and then enroll in another college because i know you're a psychologist today so what what happened there <laughs> well fortunately i was i think it was the spring of my senior year so i was already on my way out so i think i was pretty much non-functioning for i don't know two three weeks i think i got extensions and some classes i don't even remember how i got it together but somehow i you know i finished 
Um, I finished that. Oh, and of course, we still had, what did we have back then? Daily chapel was a requirement. We had to go to a church meeting every Wednesday, what they call it, chapel also, I guess. Um, And then we were supposed to attend church on Saturday. So I still did that stuff mostly. Sometimes I got out of it, but my mind was, I was elsewhere, you know, by then. Um, but you know, so I think I was in such shock. I didn't even really pay attention to that. I just did it. And, you know, then I was shortly thereafter out of there, but, um, yeah, but it was a hard time, you know, obviously emotionally and intellectually. And, but I was lucky my parents, my parents were really non-dogmatic and they were not real sticklers. They were not, um, they, they were just very accepting folks. So even though they saw that I was really going through something and I told them just a little bit about it, they were also very educated, you know, people themselves. So they, they could imagine it. And, you know, I'm sure they, especially my mother had, had also had her own doubts and so on, but had chosen to stay in the church largely for family reasons to not disappoint her parents and so on. So it probably mm-hmm. wasn't shocking to have their daughter come home their daughter that they knew was very bookish and so on to have her come home and saying, you know, I've discovered the world. I've discovered, <laughs> I've discovered philosophy. Mm-hmm. I've discovered books. I don't know. I've discovered comparative religions and they'd be like, oh. so I, I was fortunate in that, that way, unlike so many others that I didn't suffer any kind of, you know, repercussions or losses like that. Nobody in my family, you know, um, isolated me or anything of the sort but it's always really for me a lot more of an intellectual and you know metaphysical and spiritual um struggle mm-hmm. and wow. so then after that yeah i chose to go to graduate i had uh took about a year off and i uh, went to paris and studied french and just did a little this and that did some substitute teaching and i really felt talk about lost i felt very lost again mm. intellectually and so on you know as as one does after leaving a high demand high control you know church like so many of us have where everything like you said about your identity has been set out for you your purpose the meaning of your life what you're supposed to do with your time all of that is just you know just dissolved and disappeared so I was really in, felt like I was in limbo for a long time, um, as far as that sense spiritually and intellectually and all that. But I did end up going to graduate school first in literature, and I went to UCLA, a secular school. Ooh. The only little <laughs> chiding I got was from one of my uncles who, and this is, my folks come from the Midwest, so, you know, Midwest nice is really the religion, I think. <laughs> So the the most chiding I ever got was my uncle saying, "Oh, well, going to a worldly school—that's a little, you know, risky." I think was his was his uh, comment. Um, yeah. So then I went on from there. Um, always strange to go out in the world, though. You know, even as a non-believer, you know, at that point. But because then it just. You start to meet people who've had such different backgrounds, all the things, you know, that we were never exposed to. So much, obviously, diversity of people. I met the first Jewish person I think I know knowingly ever met. Clearly, I had, but I didn't know because we were in such a bubble. <laughs> so just meeting up with the diversity of people in every way that we are diverse. 
Yeah. So did it take, would you say it was a year or a couple years or even a few years before you kind of found your feet again? Because you mentioned the word shock even, and I remember that it is a shock to find out everything that we've been taught and built our identity on and our life on is just someone else's interpretation of events rather than literal uh, truth. And that is, it takes a while then for us to determine who we are apart away from those beliefs Mm -hmm. and what we do believe now, if, if uh, anything spiritual at all. Um, Mm -hmm. So that whole period is so angst filled and existential dread was another one that was big for me. Um, And then you're in UCLA and I imagine every day was new and exciting and strange, wondrous things. And at some point you shift from just the, the horror of what you've lost to the welcoming, oh my gosh, look at all that I stand to gain now. The world has opened up before me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I found a lot of, a lot of kind of, you know, interest and excitement in those things of the world that opened up. Like I said, just meeting so many different people from so many different backgrounds that, you know, I'd never been able to meet before. And I did a lot, quite a bit of traveling. So just discovering, you know, other countries, other, just that everything could be different. What you ate could be different. The time of day you woke up, the time of day you had dinner could be different. You're in Spain, you're eating dinner at 10 p.m. instead of at the nice and tidy 5.30 p.m. You know, so those things were really enriching, you know, and and exciting. And, um, but certainly, again, just to put that canard to rest, you know, not why I left the church, didn't leave the church so I could sin, didn't leave the church so I could smoke cigarettes and drink coffee, um, didn't leave the church so, you know, I could go eat dinner at 10 p.m. Um, that seems like a very unadventist thing to do you know, for a Norwegian <laughs> Adventist. That probably was right next to being sinful, I'm sure. Um, so didn't leave for that reason. Uh, but yeah, I did enjoy, you know, all of that, just, you know, <laughs> reading a lot more books and learning just a lot more about everything that had just not been in our, our purview. But internally, you know, emotionally, mentally, intellectually, I was very much in limbo. And, you know, I mean, just to be straight up about it, you know, in pretty in a pretty dark place for a long time as far as mm-hmm. my outlook. Um, I didn't, but very nihilistic, you know, in that sense. I didn't mm-hmm. think there was anything from anything, you know, really that that you could point to as this is a positive actual meaning, you know, reason to be or a reason for human existence that you could positively, that I could positively hold to. I did come to a very, you know, let's just call it kind of cavalier, you know, a stance or slogan i'd say to myself finally was okay so what's your reason for living for the hell of it Mm -hmm. that was kind of the best i that was really the best i could come up with it was Mm -hmm. um i guess what the theologians out there would call an apophatic you know kind of theology just a statement of a negation that's Mm. all i could say Mm -hmm. was that that i don't know what i can't speak of it i there's nothing i could speak of that i could affirm positively that seems that so honest. Even, yeah. Yeah. It didn't feel very good. Um, mm-hmm. it felt it felt pretty dark, you know, a lot. It felt pretty, you know, 
what's the word, discouraging, or it was hard to find things to be passionate about or really care about. Mm-hmm. If you can't find a reason to explain, mm-hmm. and this, of course, is part of the tyranny of having grown up in a tradition as Protestants are so based in belief. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't realize that till later. One thing that makes Protestantism particularly unique and difficult is it's all about you, what your intellectual beliefs or principles are. That's what defines whether you belong to that group or not. You're not born into it, like you might be born Jewish or born into a Indian, you know, Southeast Asian, Indian, Hindu tradition. It's something you have to assent to intellectually. So mm-hmm. if you don't have the beliefs or some beliefs, you don't have anything. And that's part of why I think it's especially so hard for former evangelicals or anybody from a Protestant tradition when you leave that, because we've never known that you could have a reason to exist or a reason for your life that isn't a dogmatic one, that isn't a theological or intellectual one, or isn't something about principle. It could just be <laughs> living or just your life. It could derive mm-hmm. from other things. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah, you're really hitting on uh, some of the profound uh, grief that we suffer uh, when we leave, uh, say, if we have been uh, evangelical, um, and then we no longer have that. And it's not, I didn't want to leave. I I never would have imagined myself not believing. I was utterly devoted. And then to suddenly be in a free fall and time of existential uh, crisis and the loss of community and identity and worldview were so profound, but I still had to go to work every day because I had bills to pay. And I didn't know anyone else who had um, believed as devoutly as I had and had left and then had gone on to have a successful uh, life or a, or a happy life. I just felt so, uh, alone so just bereft um and and so then i wonder that's part of what propelled me Mm -hmm. to do the work that i do and putting on the conference on religious trauma and working with clients recovering Mm -hmm. from religious trauma syndrome Mm -hmm. and i imagine this also played a role in some of the work that you do with clients Mm -hmm. oh yeah definitely and it's part of why i was drawn into psychology also because i had such a hunger to know more or to know other ways of being and other ways of thinking, other ways to derive a sense of meaning or purpose, you know, for life. Of course, I still hadn't realized, you know, that it didn't always have to come from a set of ideas. Uh, that that piece took a really long time. But so psychology for me was a great fit because I found a way to just keep on exploring all of these questions and then to help other people, you know, kind of through those inquiries, you know, and through that process. Um, and I love psychology, you know, for the, for that tool that it is, you know, for both inquiry, but not only the intellectual part, obviously, to how how to be more embodied in your life, how to be a more, more whole person altogether, like waking up to realize there is also a right brain, not only a left brain <laughs> that holds the beliefs. Um, and uh, so I just found that in that values that I could get behind and, and could, and felt satisfying to me without being 
um, you know, demanding belief or else, you know, <laughs> believe in this or, or be lost. But just, again, those questions of, of inquiry, being able to keep pursuing and inquire into one's values, whatever they may be and wherever they may lead, which is the freedom, you know, I found in that kind of secular secular work that was not in, in the religious tradition. Right. Yeah, and I just, I fell into, you know, working in this sphere, working with, you know, folks who suffered spiritual abuse, religious trauma, or in this process of deconstruction, um, when it really kind of came to my attention, of course, with 2016 and the appearance of Trump, that so many evangelicals, you know, were really struggling with that, and it was causing a crisis of faith for so many people, um, obviously, that culminated in the hashtag exvangelical and in the beginning, really, of that kind of movement. So when I saw that stuff, I was like, oh, wait, excuse me, I know all about this, but from you know, a long time ago, I went through this, what is now called deconstruction, you know, when I was 21, back in the, when was that, the early 80s, and I just had, you know, my my friends, a number of my friends, you know, we deconstructed together, but there was no name for it at that time. Um, uh, for me, deconstruction is a movement of, uh, you know, <laughs> French continental philosophy, <laughs> 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 but as a, but deconstructing one's faith, then all the things that were the, now being talked about, you know, from 2016 and with the religious right and and people really struggling with that and starting to put it on social media, I said, oh my gosh, like I've been there, been through it, lived through it, know what it's like, and, and now I just happen to be a psychologist, so I can you know certainly understand what's going on for people psychologically, and so it's. It just feels like really a natural fit for me then to put that experience of mine, my own personal experience, kind of at the service of, you know, helping other folks through their process. Right. And one one way that you um, have also uh, come through it all is through the use of writing and mm -hmm. poetry. That's something that's been very important for you. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was always interested in, um, you know, in writing, you know, for self-expression, but growing up as an Adventist, uh, Adventist, or partly because of things I think that Ellen White, you know, the prophet uh, wrote, uh, were very against fiction. And they weren't the only ones. I think there was a probably in the temperance movement, just in general, you know, and in Victorian England, there was always a scandal about novels and young women are wasting their lives reading, you know, novels and going <laughs> off into, you know, the land and so on. And it makes them unsuitable for, you know, being barefoot and pregnant, I guess, <laughs> they have their head uh, out in the story. But uh, but it really caused a lot of impact on one's education because even though, like I said before, I was an English major in college, we read almost no novels. So being an English major at that time, I won't speak for you know, subsequent decades, like I said, but at that time was almost an oxymoron because there was really little, little you could study very much. It was touchy. And I mean, certainly it was more accepted among the intellectuals of the church, of which there are some, um, obviously my professors who had PhDs, uh, but not among the rank, rank and file and certainly outside of the left coasts um, where the church um, folks are a lot more conservative. 
But so however much I was kind of interested in writing, the only proper ambition for that would have been to write for church publications. My mother herself had actually done that. She was also an English teacher, and she taught at the Adventist College. And she had obviously even an older, you know, generation from the 40s, you know, when she was in college. She really struggled with that, knowing that fiction and all the things really kind of that are part of literary study for the world were not okay for Adventists. And she also loved to write. She wrote poetry herself some when she was in college, but always on religious topics. So it had to be for those purposes. Um, But I also found it really hard to try to write because of what happened, you know, for us as in these very high control environments, you know, and especially as women where we really can't have a self all those things of us that are too unique or too quirky are risky because again, they may go against our, you know, our um, duty to be, you know, kind and reverent and righteous at all times and so on. So servants. Yeah. Be of service to be sub- submissive, whatever. So you can't, you can't get too unique. You can't get too individualistic. You can't use your imagination too much. And you also can't stick out. And, you know, I think in my mind, at least to be a writer, is to put yourself out there in some way and expose your real thoughts or fantasies or ideas. And any of that could be risky, right? Because we're likely to violate some principle or some value, you know, of the church or, you know, proper comportment and so on. So I literally wasn't able really to write much, you know, other than in a journal until I was much older. Um, when I finally, even long after I left the church, but I, it was hard to push myself to be that expressive, you know, or to dare to put, you know, that much of my own maybe subjective, you know, or personal thoughts out on paper. But I was, I finally started to be able to write poetry, you know, around the time when uh, I had my first child, when I was a bit older, and it was very cathartic as soon as I was able to do that. And a lot of the main first poems that I wrote, I actually wrote a what's turned out to be a whole manuscript about my deconstruction. Because I've I think that content, as much as I had dealt with it sort of intellectually and consciously, but I had a lot of just just intense feelings of the impact of what it was, especially the part about really not being able to have a self, not be able to own your own thoughts or acknowledge them, to not be able to have feelings, whether emotional, physical, sexual, or just there was so much that was forbidden. We had to be so white bread, you know, again, in the sort of context of the North American church and the Midwestern nice uh, aspect mm-hmm. of it. So mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of taboos to break and so on. So, which I did with the, with the vehemence in my poetry. So wow. I some of the poems yeah, from that manuscript, but it was very, a very helpful process to go through creatively. And I probably was writing those poems for maybe two years. I want to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and truly, so, yeah. Once I wrote, I felt done with a lot of it, a lot of the tension, a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of the intensity, you know, feeling about what it was to have been, you know, raised in such a such an environment. 
um, really put it out on the page. It was very helpful. It's such a, I love writing and poetry in particular because um, it, I feel like it's allowing me to access different parts of myself and to, it gives me some space. Like it can feel too painful to say some things out loud, but to be able to write them or even write them in a way sometimes that's disguised or different than how I might normally speak there. It's all, it's such a beautiful tool. It can be such a powerful tool. I do encourage my, my clients to explore artistic, um, creative ways of getting out some of their thoughts and emotions. I think that's a really powerful way to do it. Yeah. And even visually, as you're talking about, I, I do the same. I, I do often encourage folks to maybe just draw or sketch, you know, just put some color down because sometimes those things are just feel so inexpressible. And partly because of all the taboos, all the no's, you know, that we heard, all the things that weren't acceptable. So sometimes just giving them another outlet, you know, can can really help finding another medium. Yeah. Well, um, where can people find you? How can people get in touch with you? Yeah. Well, I have a website, um, just my name, Coco Owen, uh, PhD.com. And on my website, I you know, have a section where I talk about my work with uh, deconstruction and religious trauma and a few other things you know, I kind of work with, too. I worked with young adults earlier in my career, you know, in the university setting, you know, because I have a fairly academic background. So I was related to folks uh, who were in academia. Also, I've worked with old, older adults. But, you know, these questions of deconstruction and so on, they you know, span the lifespan. So you know, folks of any age who find themselves in that position, you know, they're always welcome. You know, I love, I love working with folks going, you know, through these, um, these issues and confronting this process. Um, I have an Instagram, but not very active, you know, on there, but I do have some content more again around, um, you know, religious trauma and recovery. And that's, I think, Coco Owen PhD. Wonderful. Well, thanks. This has been so interesting hearing your testimony and what life has <laughs> oh, been like for you. <laughs> yes. Thanks for oh, joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, again, it's interesting to, it's therapeutic even to go back that many decades and remember some of what it was like and, and to be able to reflect on what the process looks like, you know, over a long period of time. So there's definitely a there there. Um, out here, folks, to paraphrase Gertrude Stein to my own purpose. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. I see you um, as a trailblazer and I appreciate uh, what you bring to our field. Thanks, Coco. Thank it was really Thanks, nice Dennis. to see you again. You too. And thank you for joining us today. I encourage you to pick up your tickets for the Conference on Religious Trauma. It's happening this October and I'll have information in the show notes as well as some more information on Dr. Owen. Take care, everyone. 